seated and welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. It's a joy to get to gather with you guys here this morning. It was a joy to get to gather last week when we had uh, the chili cook-off, which was phenomenal. Uh, chili, cornbread, all that. I had no idea that like the winner of each of those was going to get a golden spoon. And, and like to be clear, it wasn't solid gold, so like don't get all worried about the budget. Like it was, you know, from Amazon and it was cheap, um, but like it looked gold, you know. Um, so anyway, super uh, awesome to get to gather together. Uh, and then, man, just the youth uh, this weekend or this last week, we're all out at the uh, the corn maze. Um, and despite our best efforts, um, we came back with the same number of kids that we went with. And so nobody got uh, lost in the maze uh, too long. But a great time for that. Uh, and then, you know, gosh, you know, on on, on Tuesday. Uh, um, Reformation Day, uh, or as the rest of the world calls it, Halloween. Um, we are going to be out at the Lake Stevens um, uh, uh, Fall Festival, uh, and we're going to be handing out candy as people from all over the county uh, gather there just to kind of trick-or-treat uh, in a safe, uh, fun environment. And so if you want to help out with that, we still need some volunteers. Uh, but if you're just like, hey, I don't know what to do on Tuesday, come on down to North Cove Park in Lake Stevens where we did our outdoor church service at and come hang out with us for a little while. That'll be from... Uh, uh, three, uh, or some four to seven, rather. So we're not just doing announcements today. We're actually announcing good news. We're announcing the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, we are announcing that there is freedom in faith in Christ. We're announcing that your sins can be forgiven through the work of Jesus. We're announcing that as part of your sins being forgiven, you are no longer uh, a spiritual orphan, but you're actually brought into a spiritual family. And, and even when I say that word family, you're like spiritual family, like church family, like family of Christ. That family word um, has a whole bunch of different connotations depending on how your family was when you grew up or the family that you're in now. And so sometimes there's, there's positive connotations of that. Maybe you've seen very positive portrayals of family uh, on, uh, you know, on movies or TV or something like that. Uh, maybe, maybe you were the kid who, like the family down the street, that was a family, not what you were, grew up in, but they were a family, right? You know, you just had visions of them all eating dinner together. And, and you know, when the parents are like, pass the peas, the kids are like, yes, mom and dad, you know, like super calm and chill and all that stuff. And their house is always clean, all that. And maybe that wasn't what you grew up with. Maybe what you grew up with was a little dysfunctional. Or maybe it was a lot dysfunctional. So when I say, hey, God's a father and, and, and we're his children, you're like, hold up. I don't want anything to do with that because I don't like my dad. Or my dad wasn't around. Or my dad had this impact on me. And so as, as a church, as a church, when we say we're the family of God, and we're part of a family of, of families, of, of churches, like, like there's just baggage there. And so, um, even if you came from the, the greatest family, and you're like, man, I love it. We're, we're the so-and-sos, and we always do this, and we, you know, you know, we have family reunions where everybody wears matching sweaters, and we do sack races and all that stuff, and, and you're like, or, or, you know, we're prominent in the community or whatever. Like, hey, that, that, that's great, but, but every, like, in all of the good things you enjoy about your family, those are reflections of the way God intends a good family to function his family to, to function. And yet, if we're honest, we know that there's always dysfunction in families. And so when you call the church a family, 
There's always dysfunction in churches. We can all agree to that, right? And so it's, it's challenging for us. And so Paul, um, who was a church planter, who, who planted a church in Thessalonica, um, who uh, wrote this letter that we've been looking at all fall in this series we're in called, called Thrive, Flourishing, and Faithfulness. Paul plants a church, and, and there's some of like the most leading people in the city. Uh, there was a bunch of marginalized people, everything in between. And it, the church was planted amongst a lot of like even community controversy. And Paul's left. He's involved in other church plants now. He wants to know how they're doing. He's heard some good things about them. And so in the ways that that church in Thessalonica like reflects a, a good and loving family, Paul wants to see them continue that. And like we can also agree, there's always room for growth. There's no point before we meet Jesus face to face where we're made perfect and there's no more sin any longer that, that we don't need some growth. That there's not, you know, if you're having like a, a good boss, they'd say uh, on a review, you have areas of improvement, right? Which means I'm really mad at you about this. And if you could fix that, you could stay here. But if you don't, you're out, right? Oh, now we're a business now. We're not family anymore. Okay. So Paul's like, hey, I, I want to see you guys continue to grow in this. And so the first half of the letter, he, he's been talking uh, great theology about, about God and, and identity and what our relationship in Christ looks like and, and how this church was formed. And then in chapter 4, he begins to make this shift where he's like, okay, now that we've, again, reset and reestablished those foundations theologically and, and the truth of the gospel of who, who Christians are and who Jesus is and all that, now let's talk about what do our family values look like? And so in the verses preceding this one, he talked a lot about sexuality and how that should, should describe us in, in a way that is faithful and holy to, to God's design and purpose. And, and when, it, when and where it's not, we need repentance and also the truth of the gospel like, like pays for our sins and, and cleans us of the sins that have been done to us so we can stand before God and we can stand in community with one another as new creations, no longer defined by our sin, but defined by what Jesus has done. And so he's going to, continue that theme of what do our family values look like throughout the rest of this letter to talk about what does a flourishing or thriving church looks, look like. And, and so that requires us individually to, to understand who we are as brothers and sisters in Christ. And it also is incumbent upon us relationally uh, as a church to, to understand how does that then impact how we interact with other people. And so today in these verses, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12, he's going to talk about what kind of family values of the people of God and what does it look like? What, what does it look like to be thriving as a family? I don't mean your family thriving, although it should, your immediate family. Hey, that's great, you know. But, but no, how do we as a church thrive as a church family? So here we are, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9. Uh, I'm going to go 9 to uh, halfway of 10, and then we'll stop and we'll talk about it. He says this, Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. 
Okay, Macedonia is the, the region that Thessalonica is in. And so he's saying, hey, your church in Thessalonica, hey, you guys are an awesome example of, of what it looks like to live out as a gospel community. What it looks like to, to be the people of God in loving one another, in caring for one another, uh, in, in um, encouraging one another, and, and so much so that he says, you, you guys are a bit of a model church. And so um, there's a few terms, though, I think we should look at for a moment. And that first one is, is brotherly love. Okay, um, the, the, the word there in the original uh, Greek is Philadelphia. It's where we get the, the name for the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But what that was, was a, a word that was typically reserved for that affection and connection you have with your, with your immediate family, with your blood relatives. And he's saying, you church made up of a bunch of different races, bunch of different socioeconomic statuses, men and women, um, like a lot of different religious backgrounds, family backgrounds, cultural backgrounds. You guys are now a family. The affection that you have for one another, the care and concern you have for one another, he now equates to that same level that you should have for your blood relatives, for your family and so it was relationships that required virtue and equality and familiarity. And so this is a huge shift in intensity and significance to not be like, well, church is a place I, I go to. Or, yeah, I'm a Christian like there's other Christians around the world, kind of whatever. I'm just kind of, it's just me and God. He's saying, no, no. If you're going to think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, it needs to then be in the context of understanding that your relationship with other Christians is equal to or similar to the depth of loyalty, care, concern, affection that you have for your blood relatives. And so... Um, if you have a family from your birth, that's, that's great. That can, that can describe you, and that's definitely going to shape a lot of what your life looks like. But he said, hey, if you're a Christian, your identity isn't, I'm a, you know, I'm a rich, I'm a, you know, whatever, a lot of their last names, if I start saying them, it might be one of yours, and that could be, not go well. Um, right? It's no longer that. My identity, my primary identity is that I am in Christ. My identity is hidden in his and what he has done. When I was in sin, I was a spiritual orphan. God, in the grace of the gospel, adopts me into his family. I now have that family name. I have that legal family status. But what happens a lot in adoption, right? People come into a family. They've got the name. It's legal, stamped. That's never going to change. But it takes a while for people adopted into a family to start to feel like family, to start to live out the family values that that family has, that culture that they have uh, of love and affection for one another. And so if you have your blood family, that's great, but you, in Christ you have a, a family not of birth, but of new birth. A family not defined by your bloodline, but defined by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. That's what unifies us if you're a Christian. And so um, these people have um, been a gospel community. They've pledged allegiance to King Jesus, uh, and in doing so, 
There was great cultural cost for the Thessalonians to do this. Some of them had to renounce Judaism and they were put out of the synagogue. Some had to renounce paganism uh, of their Greek gods and they were no longer welcome in the temples and no longer could do the things that were happening in the temples with a good and clean conscience. And so for those people, like there wasn't a bunch of different churches in town where it was like, oh yeah, I mean, the preaching of this one's just so-so, the music's good, I'm gonna go over here, because oh, they have this political position, and so I'm gonna go to that one. Like, there wasn't church hopping and shopping. There was just the church in Thessalonica. And almost out of necessity, it was, you've been cast out of the other cultural ways that you experience community. And so you're telling people, hey, come be a Christian. Well, what is that going to mean for me? Well, it means that your pagan parents aren't going to love you anymore. It means that the world's going to think that you're a little crazy because what you think about sexuality and holiness. It means that that people are going to think you're patriotic enough because you don't pledge allegiance to Caesar. You pledge allegiance to King Jesus. So you're basically going to be a cultural pariah. And everyone's like, cool, sign me up. When can I get baptized? I didn't like my nice comfy job. I didn't like everybody harding my statuses on social media. I'd rather just deal with vitriol and isolation. Well, no, because it wasn't, it was a call from those things in the world that were opposed to God, but, but it was an invitation into a new family, into a new community, that Jesus as their king, that God as their father, And so they had new defining relationships that said, yeah, we're going to look at one another with brotherly or sisterly love and affection because for them, this was their family now. Now, I'm not saying as a Christian you need to renounce your family or or leave your job or anything like that. Quite the contrary. But for this culture, that, that was the stakes. And so it was so important for them, that their Christianity, that their understanding of what it meant to be a Christian was not just individual, but was also communal. That they were part of something. That they were no longer, they were estranged from their birth families, but they weren't sacrificing community and family because they were brought into a new one centered on the gospel. And so Paul says, Thessalonican church, I don't even need to write to you guys about brotherly or sisterly love and affection because you guys are embodying it. And, and, and you know, you could be like, wow, good, good for these guys. Like maybe it's just, you know, they're all uh, brothers and sisters in adversity or, you know, m- maybe just there's something unique about it or maybe because there was just one church or whatever. Like, again, let me reiterate these were people of different races, different cultural backgrounds, um, different socioeconomic statuses, um, different religious uh, and cultural backgrounds, and then they were all brought in together. If they were showing love and affection to someone, man, that's probably because the Holy Spirit has done a work in their hearts to say that God that saved you, that God that saved you is the same one that saved me, and so we are now part of something new and different. Like, I don't have anything else in common with you. You don't have anything else in common with me. We got Jesus in common, and that should be enough. And, and you know, hey, there's other times, like, you, you know, you have different you know, levels of affinity for other people. Hey, that's great. We'll talk about that in a second. That's okay. But he says, I don't have to write to you because, because you and the brothers and sisters, it's not just that you guys have done an awesome job of gospel community. It was because you've been taught by God. 
You've, you've been loved by God. And you're like, well, how did he, how did God teach them? How, how did that, what did that look like? I don't know specifically what their experience is, but I can tell you that the Bible teaches a lot about how we love one another by the way God has arranged the family to be. Like if you don't know, the Bible begins with God creating a family, a husband and wife that had, had brothers, or had sons, they were brothers, and, and, and sin entered the world, and, and once sin entered the world, that family harmony, like we're all like, yeah, I know my family has sin. Well, all families have had sin since the beginning. God made them good. We rebelled. We rejected God. Sin entered our familial experiences. For the husband and wife, it meant shame right away. It meant blame shifting. And we don't know how Adam and Eve recovered after that. But we know they had a couple brothers. One jealous of the other, so much so it led to the first murder. Hey, that's a delightful family. Okay? And yet, and yet, God's plan isn't scratch the family. Like, oh, we'll, just, we'll have government take care of it. We don't need that, right? Or you don't need your family. You don't need any family. No, no, no. No, God actually doubles down and says, by the way, the way I'm going to redeem, the way I'm going to save the world is going to be through a family line. And so throughout Genesis, he ratifies that and says, through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which becomes the nation of Israel. It didn't start as a nation. It started as a family. He says, I'm going to bless all the nations, all the families of the earth. And then we know that Jesus, well, we're a few weeks away from Christmas. Actually, I'm sure some of you on Wednesday after Halloween, that's when Christmas starts for you. You're crazy. Let Thanksgiving have its turn, okay? Just ease up. Enjoy some turkey. Let Thanksgiving get a turn, right? Don't just go Halloween to Christmas. Okay, anyway. Right, but, but as we get towards Christmas, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating God coming in the flesh through a family, in fact, it even says he's, he's part of a long legacy of kings all the way back to King David. Makes it very clear that Joseph was part of the line of David, that, that, that Jesus would actually be adopted into that family line because Joseph would adopt him, paving and showing the way that when we come into the family of God, it's through adoption, spiritually speaking. And so God, like the, the, the gospel of family, the theme of family just goes all the way through scripture, all the way to, to the end of the Bible where it describes us, every tribe, tongue, and nation all seated together around a big family dinner, a big family meal. And again, I know because we come in with baggage, when I say big family dinner together, you're like, oh, not my family. Again, no more sin, <laughs> no more suffering. No more sense of separation or, or discord. No, no, no aunt or uncle with a, you know, less than fashionable political opinion that they're sharing, right? You know, at Thanksgiving, right? See, I, I fired you up for Thanksgiving and now you don't want to do it anymore. Okay. You're like, let's get to Christmas. All right. But I just want us to know that God has taught us to love one another because he said, I'm going to love and bless the world through a family and so the implication, uh, if we're going to be taught to love one another, is that we might not do so well naturally. 
Again, because of sin, because of shame, because of pride. There's all sorts of reasons. So you might need some skills, some ways of being, some heart attitudes. And so throughout the Bible, we're, we're given these different instructions for what loving one another should look like. First John 4.10 says this, just so we know what love is. He says, in this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a theological word that means absorbing our wrath. That, that God is the initiating agent in love. That God teaches us that love is initiating. Because he is initiating. Not that we love God first. He came to us even when I and you and we were unlovable. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was his death that absorbed the wrath of God for our sins, the propitiation of our sins. And so we know that God loves us because even though our sin warrants wrath, God gives mercy to us in Christ, not justice, because our, our wrath, what we've earned for sin, has been absorbed and taken on by Christ. And so if you want to know what love looks like, what the love of God looks like, when we want to look at the love of God, we look at the cross of Christ. That's where we see how God loves, for, uh, loves us, leading us to be sacrificial in our love for others, initiating in our love for others. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, Jesus tells the disciples in John 13, 35, by, all, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. He says, by this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That that's actually going to be the defining characteristic for us as Christians. Our love for one another. And so if we can recognize that we are loved people in Christ, then that can free us and empower us to love other people well. And so, yeah, we still need to be encouraged. We still need to be taught uh, and whatnot. And so their knowledge of brotherly love at their church was put into practice so well that they said, hey, the other churches in the region are looking to you, Thessalonica, as a great example of how you guys love one another. He's commending them. And as we just said a while ago, there's still room for growth. It's not like, okay, building blocks of a church. We believe the right things, yes and amen. We believe what's true about Jesus. Okay, we accept him as our, as our savior and king uh, and all that. And then now we've loved one another, check. Now what, what do we do now? Well, loving one another is not a one-time act. Oh yeah, we look to a, a one-time act of Jesus on the cross to, to, to know what sacrificial love is like, but God's love for us is not just a one-time act. It is an ongoing love and presence and communion, which means our love for one another is an ongoing presence and communion with one another. And so it needs to continue. That's why um, in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verse 10, on the back half of it, he says this, but we urge you, Brothers and sisters, to do this more and more. He said, you guys have a great, healthy gospel culture right now. That's awesome. Keep going. Keep going. Keep practicing brotherly love. Keep thriving as a brotherhood or a sisterhood. That is your defining relationship with others in the church. And so as a family, we're either going to be dysfunctional and wither or we're going to be healthy and flourish. 
And so while in Christ, you're justified before God and you're adopted into the family once and for all, your life as a Christian is one where you're pursuing growth more and more. And so when it comes to living as brothers and sisters, I think we need a few clear instructions on what fosters brotherhood. And so I've just got a few quick points that I'm going to run through here quick. Number one, brotherhood cannot be taken for granted or assumed. Brotherhood and sisterhood cannot be taken for granted or assumed. Because of sin, our default is not family, it is estranged. It's not unified, it's divorce. It's not family. But because God's created a new family, we can't just assume that everybody understands that all the time or knows what that means. And so as we said, he didn't say, hey, you guys have gotten gospel community down. Go ahead and move on. No, he says continue to grow more and more. Number two, brotherhood must be initiated. He said, our God is an initiating God. He's not a God that says, well, you know, just hope they figure it out. Or Jesus shows up on the scene and Jesus is like, you know, I'm just going to stay in obscurity forever. And maybe someday somebody will ask me, are you the son of God? I'll be like, yep, been the whole time. No, Jesus, like, yeah, he goes through a season of obscurity for sure. And it's like, but he watches a public ministry of initiation, of reaching out, of proclaiming love, of practicing love. And so brotherhood must be initiated. It's got to be a two-way street, right? Sometimes we feel like we're not fully family because others haven't initiated with us. Maybe you, you come in today and you're like, hey, I mean, I've shown up to this church a few times, but it doesn't feel like family to me. Or it does, it feels like my family that I don't like very much. And like, nobody's invited me to X. Nobody's, nobody's reached out to me in this way. Let, let me tell you, brotherhood and sisterhood is an initiating love. It might be on you to initiate to other people. I mean, I, I honestly would not be married if, if there wasn't a pastor that in a sermon just said, hey, none of you know each other. Invite somebody out to lunch this week. I was like, check. I'm going to go find a cute one. Right? And it, I mean, it worked out great. Mostly? Most, okay, yeah. Right, but there's initiation that that takes. So I understand, like, even in a, a room with 120 people or whatever, like, like uh, even in a smaller church, it can feel lonely. It can feel isolated. Even as a leader at times, it can feel lonely and isolated. Then ask yourself, when was the last time you initiated relationship? All right, number three. Brotherhood must be maintained. That it actually does require work. It actually requires regular rhythms that... that, that, that I mean, yeah, you can say, hey, I got baptized. I'm a Christian now. Uh, I'm part of that church. I showed up that one time. Like, like, there's a reason that we just have these rhythms of gathering. That we gather each week. That we do different studies. That we, that we do different meals. That we do different events. Because it actually takes maintenance. Because at a certain point, some of you and some of us, we have family that is distant from us. And yeah, we, we may still be family, and maybe when we get together, we can kind of pick up where we left off. But like, man, true, like, like brotherhood and sisterhood that's experienced at, a, at an intimate and familial level just requires some like, we are in each other's presence every now and then. That we're maintaining those relationships, and that we're, we're cultivating those relationships. And again, that's when we, we do things like retreats or that's when we do things like different events or different classes, right? Like just creating environments where we can be together as brothers and sisters. 
And so before you're like, dang it, okay, I better join every Bible study. I better sign up for every serve team. I better do all these different things. And you just wear yourself out to a spiritual frazzle. Brotherhood must be sustainable. Like, there's a reason God's worked these rhythms of life to create a pace of family life together with, yeah, daily, you know, uh, rhythms of, of prayer with him and, and reading God's word, weekly rhythms of gathering on Sundays and at other points, but like, some of the most like, stifling times are the only people you're hanging out with are people from church. At a certain point, right, you have to be able to have relationships that are sustainable. I mean, even Jesus, like he's with the disciples. He had three years with those guys. Lots of camping and road trips and everything on their, uh, on their um, you know, missions and all that stuff. Uh, preaching and going to the different cities and all that. And at certain points, Jesus was like, I need a break from you people. He didn't say it quite like that. But he did say he, he retreated to places of silence and solitude. Like it is okay to be like, this is a time where I just need to be away from other people. This is when I need a break from you. That's okay. But, but let that be a break so that you can continue a sustainable rhythm of gathering with one another. Brotherhood is a marathon and not a sprint. See, we meet other brothers and sisters in Christ and, and there's this connection and, and sometimes we're like, oh my gosh, this is gonna, like, we're like best of friends right away. That happens, that's awesome. But other times, it can take a long time to feel like you're part of the family. And so that might require endurance, like, like with some other brothers and sisters in Christ as part of a church where you're like, you know, if you, like um, Tara and I, when we lived in, in Texas, we were part of a really cool gospel community. Like we're just really tight. Uh, everybody was young, didn't have kids yet. And so we'd all stay out late uh, throughout the week and just kind of hang out and do all sorts of things. And we'd serve and we'd hang out. It was, it was a blast. And we just really felt like that that's Christian community. I mean, we were hanging out every night practically and all that. And it's like, man, we are so tight with these people. And then, and then we had our twins, and we moved back here, and we, we joined a church plant at that time, and we were just like, what's wrong with these people? Like, they all had, like, you know, kids, you know, other lives besides just church activities, and it just took a long, long time to feel like, in fact, I, I don't even know if I've ever experienced anything like I did in my, my early 20s, and part of that was stage of life. But the point being is, you can't go from a church community where you had relationships for years, show up one Sunday, show up five Sundays, show up 12 Sundays, and have it feel like the place you were at for three years or five years or 10 years. So gospel community, brother and sister, is a marathon, not a sprint. You, 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 can't, you can't microwave family. It has to marinate it's got a slow cook, like, like that steak and that chili that Josh had last week that just everybody voted for, right? Josh, Josh didn't like wake up that morning and open up a can, you know, and just like dump it out and, and he said, oh, I'm sure, man, that steak had been marinating for days. It's so good. We're all hungry now. Okay, let's go. Brotherhood is unity in Christ, despite our differences. So... Brotherhood, sisterhood is not always uniformity. It's unity in a family, but it's not uniformity. Um, we, we have a pretty big family, uh, the Rich Army does. And even with our five girls, our five girls are all different than one another. We're all part of the same family. 
But we look different. We have different interests. We have different giftings. And so if you're coming into a Christian community and you are expecting everyone to see things exactly the way you do or respond exactly the way you do about everything, that is not Christian community. That is you trying to impose your will on everyone else. Now, I'm not saying that we, that, that we let sin skate by, that we don't point to God's standards of holiness and faithfulness. And all that. I'm just saying, like, he describes, like, 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 Christian community as a family with brothers and sisters. And brothers and sisters, there's a family resemblance. There's family values and culture that share, and they're different. See, he also describes it as a body with many different members, each member being different and distinct, all necessary for the flourishing of the community. And so, brotherhood isn't easy, but it should be often enjoyable. So like, I mean, it's okay to, to have tough seasons. It's okay to have hard conversations. But if, if everything you're doing is all high intensity and I'm just here to hold you accountable all the time, all that stuff, like there should be some fun. Yeah, family has to have difficult conversations. There are trying times in families. And like a gospel brotherhood and sisterhood should still have some fun. Like that was so great about last weekend, the chili cook-off, like, we didn't have any big announcements to make. It wasn't like, hey, please come here so we can tell you what's gonna happen in the church, or like, you know, like usual, like if you guys could get more, that'd be great. Like, you know, it wasn't any of that. It was like, let's just have some fun. And let's just be a family and enjoy time together. You have to have that. You have to have that if you're gonna have brotherhood flourish. Okay. Paul loves this church. He wants to see it continue to be a loving place. They're a model of brotherhood uh, and sisterhood. The other churches in the region are looking to. And then he's like, okay, here's some ways that you guys need to grow as a family. Here's some family values you need to embody more and more. And he has that in verse 11. He says this. Verse 11 says this. He says, in after he says to urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you. Okay, there are three key things in here that culturally, he's addressing some, some cultural deficiencies in their church to say, hey, I, I, I want you to work on these three areas because they're hindering your experience of brotherhood and sisterhood. They're, they're, they're just making being part of the family not as flourishing as it could be. So the number one thing he says is this, aspire to live quietly. Aspire to live quietly. What does that mean? He's saying, hey, you don't need to be a fanatic for every issue. Like, let's be clear. There is so much injustice in the world. There is so much, like, I, if all I did each week was stand up and tell you the four or five things that I heard that went wrong this week, like, I could do that every single week and we'd all be exhausted. What we do when we're here is we are reminded of, of yes, there's transient difficulties that happen, but let's remember the transcendent truths of the God who loves us, of the God who owns the trajectory of history. And so there's, there's a difference in being radical and being a fanatic that we are, are called as Christians to be radically different. Radically different in how we love one another and how we live peacefully. That there's a settledness. That as the world goes crazy, 
And I can just guess from November 2023 to November 2024, maybe months after, things are going to get spooled up. There's going to be a lot more political chaos and upheaval. There's going to be more challenging things happening internationally in the world. There's going to be more economic things. And you're like, cool, great. Can we go back to Christmas and Thanksgiving, please? Like, there's going to be these difficulties. And I just want to encourage us. Part of how we can be good brothers and sisters to one another is, yes, care about these things. Be concerned about the injustices and brokenness in the world. And then have a settled and peaceful presence that, that we can answer the intensity of the world not with, with turning up our intensity, like not matching the world's intensity, but what we get to bring to the world and to our community here and with other churches that could be different than the way the world operates is even when we're told something unjust or slandered even. I mean, Jesus before Pilate Silent. That we can respond to the growing chaos in the world with greater settledness and peacefulness. See, many people in the Thessalonican church, they were idle, meaning like they just, they weren't working, they, were, they, were, they weren't as busy, and so they're always getting into controversy with others. And so he's saying, hey, aspire to live quietly. Uh, the actual translation uh, I saw in one of the commentaries said it this way, make your ambition to have no ambition. Now, let's caveat that a bit, because it's not about checking out. It's about having a subtle presence. Yes, we strive to flourish in the areas that God has given us purpose in our families, in our communities, in our church, in our jobs, whatever that looks like for you. But know that when you speak out about what's going on in the world, particularly like in social media, like you gotta, you gotta use that season with salt because, because if somebody like looks at your Instagram profile and it's like, son of the king, follower of Jesus, like, like, like um, you, know, uh, you know, Micah 6, 8, right? You know, seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. And you're just like, anyway, I'm going to own the lips today. Oh, those dead Trumpers. Like, come on. You're representing the family even when you're online. And so that means, yeah, there's times to speak out. There's times to say, this is where I stand on this issue. Like Jesus wasn't silent on the issues of his day. The disciples weren't silent on the issues of the day. I mean, John the Baptist literally got beheaded because he spoke out against the weirdo sexuality of the political leaders of the day. And Jesus says, that's, that's the best man that's been born a woman. So the point being though, just remember, you're representing the family with your words. So your words have power. Your words have greater power than you think. And so you have that opportunity to bring peace to a situation in ways that others don't and to not stir up greater conflict or chaos or confusion. So a great way that we can love one another and even have witness to the, the world is to not add fuel unnecessarily to the fire. But to actually be people who even when the world seems to literally be on fire, 
I mean, I'll just be honest. The, the last three, four years, I can't think of a time in my adult life that there's been more upheaval and chaos. That's my life. It's this little window, this narrow time in history. But the way that we refocus that is to remember no matter what is happening in the current events, that the trajectory of history has been, is, and will be for eternity, Jesus on the throne. If we actually believe in a big God who will restore all things, give new heavens and new earth, that Jesus will return, that there will be no more sin, suffering, conflicts, wars, cancer, all those things, then again, we can exhale. And remember that this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal way of glory. Okay. Number two, he says, mind your own affairs. That there are boundaries to our lives. That there are spheres of influence that we're given and those need to be maintained. That we, we and I and you, we're all called to a purposeful life. So what Paul isn't saying is, leave me alone. He's saying, the way you can care for your brothers and sisters in Christ, the way you can have a witness to the world is for you to deal with and care for the things that God has given you to handle, the spheres of influence he has given you. Yes, we are cared to love one another, care for one another, so it's not stay out of my business, but he's saying, hey, your primary focus should be on your family or your life or your career or whatever God has given you to do in this life. Focus on those things. A great way to love your brothers and sisters in Christ is to keep a, a close eye, and that's what mind your own affairs means, and ownership of your life. And that will end up having an overflow effect on others. Because as you set some of your life in order, it then gives you margin to care for, to love, to give charity to, to engage with, to serve others. And so you cultivate your life, your career, your business, your purpose. That is part of what it means to be a good brother and sister in Christ. To fulfill the calling God has for you. See, Paul in his second letter that we'll look at in a few weeks from now, in his second letter, he warns them against being busybodies. Not really a term we use very much. But he's basically saying, hey, you know, if you're always focused on everybody else's business, if you're always bored, that can lead you to being boorish very quickly. Because you're not taking care of your own stuff, you're just bored, and so you just worry about what everybody else has going on. Um, there's a phrase, I don't know what the attribution is, um, but it's, it goes something like this. The hand that is on the oar can't rock the boat. What he's saying is, right, like if you're on a crew race, like you, you, if you've got your, your oar to row and you're focused on that, you don't have time or capacity to be rocking the boat. God's called you for a purpose. If you're not sure what that is, I mean, who am I married to? What are my relationships? What family am I part of? What community am I in? What's my job? Who are the friends that I have? Where's the church that I'm a part of? Like, those are all things that describe God's purpose for your life. And then lastly, he says this. Work with your own hands. He's saying that we are created for work. We are created to cultivate. That God's provision 
for us is often us being productive. That we need to be reminded often that while work is difficult and work can be toil, that the way God designed work was he designed us to work before sin entered the world. So God's vision of a good world is one where we are working and cultivating to make things better around us. He placed us in a garden and said now it's cultivated, not a wilderness, and says now go and make the rest of the world a garden. Intentional, working, flourishing, cultivating. And so what he's saying here is not stated for those who are unable to work, right? There's, there's times there's disability. There's times like, I'm, I just, I'm not capable, right? Like, hey, charity for that. Yes and amen. In fact, there's even times of ongoing charity for, for widows, for, for orphans, for, uh, for single moms, for others, right? It's just like, hey, we want to be able to, to help. This is written for people because they were unwilling to work. They say, hey, you not having your affairs in order, you not working productively when you are able to, is now causing an undue burden on the rest of the gospel community because it's taking up resources. You're saying, well, I don't need to work. I'll just make sure somebody else works for me. In fact, we have a whole generations now rising up and a whole like, political ideologies around the idea that everybody else should work except for me. And it doesn't lead to societal flourishing. And so he's saying, if you are able to work, you should be. So that then the capacity the community has that is, that is extra as we're, as we're profitable and, and we're, we're working hard and, and, and being industrious on, that that extra capacity can be used for legitimate charity, can be used for emergencies, can be used to care for those who cannot care for themselves. He's saying, hey, there are moments in time where you're going to be a burden. We're all going to be a burden at some point. But we're all called to carry the load that God has designed us to carry. So a flourishing church should be a people who work productively, are profitable, to provide for themselves, to give charity inside and outside of the church. And so it is a loving thing for brothers and sisters in Christ to try to see, how can I not be a burden to others? That doesn't, hey, don't hear me wrong. You've got legitimate needs. You need help. You need coaching. You need counseling. You need counseling. Yes and Amen. But trying to set a course and trajectory for your life because of who you are in Christ, because you're part of the family, because God is good, God provides, and part of how he provides is for us actually working. To not just be consumers, but to also be contributors. And so, I mean, Jesus, I mean, he worked for years of his life as a carpenter. He lived in perfect obedience for us. And because we are his, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, it means that we can now live productive lives out of that new identity. Last verses, and then we'll close. Why, why do we need to do this? Like, like, why do we need um, to, to, to grow as a gospel community? What's some of our motivation? I mean, yes, yes, our mutual joy in flourishing together, but it's also to help flourish on mission. Last verse, verse 12 says this. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That the purpose of us flourishing as and thriving as a gospel community is so that we can actually be a witness to a world that doesn't see 
of family work like this. I don't know where your spheres of influence are, but whether it's school or work or, or, or business or, or the community or, or whatever it is, or in your family, you may be the only Christian somebody else knows that makes you not just a brother and sister in Christ, but it makes you an ambassador of his kingdom. And so we live out these kingdom family values, walking properly among outsiders, because the, the world might only know the kingdom of God through you. And that's not to put more pressure on you, it's to tell you, you have a great responsibility. And we have a great opportunity because we believe in a God who saves people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we, when we live out being a faithful family to one another, and then tells those who've experienced family trauma, maybe as Christians, maybe outside of the church, to say, oh, there is a family that I can be a part of, where I can heal, where I can grow, where I can participate, where I'm welcomed. All that we do preaches to the world. And since Jesus hasn't returned yet, then we need to be a community. It's on mission, on purpose, pointing others and inviting others to come be part of this, yep, at times dysfunctional gospel family. And he says, hey, you also do this so you don't have to be dependent on others. Again, part of how we love one another is bearing our own load so that we can then help with the burdens of others. And so we gather regularly to remember that we're a family. And so uh, in a few minutes, we're going to take communion. And at that, I don't want to hear you say you've got to save yourself, pull yourself off for your bootstraps, you've got to own your, your stuff better. I want you to know that the only thing that you have contributed to your salvation is your sin. And Jesus says, I'm going to take that. I'm going to bear that up on the cross for you. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going, to, I'm going to adopt you as a spiritual orphan into this new family. With all the status, rights, inheritance, privilege of being part of that family. And he says, I'm also going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you can begin to grow and live out what it means to be part of that new family. And so th this little meal is actually not a meal of our independence, but of our dependence on Jesus' work in our place. Dying the death we deserve and rising again so that we can have new life now and forever when we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.